on any kind of contentious topic, especially the more important topics. Seek information from the lowest status sources first who have already opted out of the game of reputation management. Oof, I'm making myself mad. There are things that I want to say soon. 10% more psycho, dude. Let's go. Let's go. Let's get it. it. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. It's where I publish my best work, I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter and it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. When you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So that's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. Am I familiar with Enneagram? No. What's Enneagram? Enneagram is a personality typing system that has nine types, and they basically describe your core fear and core desire that kind of explains how you orient yourself to life. It's kind of... Is it real or is it like woo-woo made up esoterica? Well, it's kind of in between. I've found it really useful. My wife has found it really useful. And it has origins going back through like Gurdjieff and all kinds of esoteric schools. Like no one really knows where it came from. Oh, it's really? not okay. like some Jungians met it in the 60s. It's like okay. ancient. Okay, so break it down then. Um, yeah, there are nine types and they describe basically the it, your emotional architecture. They describe how you handle the emotional baggage of being alive. Huh. Um, some people... Uh, type eights, for example, which I suspect you are. Okay. Uh, the archetype is called the challenger, and they hate to be controlled, <laughs> and they they're just like bastions of strength, and they grow when they're when they're in like a growth, you know, orientation. They become more like type two, which is the helper and the servant. They're like magnanimous because huh. if they're not, their strength will mess you up, and they'll leave a trail of destruction. Wow. Um, I am a type four known as the individualist. And when I'm growing, I will channel creativity in like a principled, concrete way um, in the direction of type one, which is the uh, perfectionist or reformer, very principled, diligent. Um, So like the way the Enneagram describes relationships between these types um, you know, helps, helps people navigate their style of, of interacting with the world, which foot they put forward, which foot they put back and what the particular, um, danger spots and growth spots are for that orientation. Fascinating. So can you extract from your diagnosis of me, some suggestions or advice on how I should be living differently or better based on what you know about me on this model? My initial thought is I wouldn't dare, but <laughs> but I'm inviting you. Yeah, to sure, yeah. <laughs> no, sure, no. But for purely entertainment reasons, eights uh, face the temptation to become cult leaders. Okay, yeah. And all the cults I've ever wanted to join have been started by eights. So like I can I can I can say from experience that uh-huh. there's like a charismatic, you know, like let's do the thing power that right. I've really always envied about eights like I'm, I'm kind of aspiring to be a four with an eight wing which is not really possible but hmm. you know I just you know I dig 
the energy and and vigor that uh, that eights put off. Connor White Sullivan, the founder of Rome Research, is an right. eight. Are you friends with him? Yeah. Okay. And I just saw your post today, so we can talk about that too. A little oh, bit. okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. since you referenced it, why sure. don't you summarize it? Sure. You talked about um, personal knowledge management being a bubble, and I I generally disagree. I'm not super deep down like the Rome cult rabbit hole, but I do use it in a kind of medium light way. And I have found it useful for, uh, you know what? I'm just going to have fun and, and pigeonhole you right, right yeah, from the beginning yeah. because you said something in a newsletter a little while ago that I screenshotted in my last second research before this. This is great. I bring guests onto the podcast yeah, and, I'm and, just they, and, they, and, you. They, and they start drilling me on my own shit. It's because I feel safe with you and I know you're cool. So you said... Uh, I think a couple couple weeks ago, good books get written by the types of people who like to write down all their silly little ideas. By doing that over and over again, sifting through them, sidelining the bad ones, cultivating the good ones, piecing together multiple good ones, if you do this long enough, it would be hard not to eventually produce a pretty genius book. And that's exactly what Rome is a mechanism for doing. Mm. It's for capturing all your BS in a very chaotic way and spontaneously helping you order it later without like a whole lot of conscious thought. Man, I'm getting confronted with my own contradictions. I, this is not what I signed up for doing a podcast. No, I'm just kidding. I see where you're going with that. And, and, and that's fair enough. I think that's interesting. Um, yeah, I think the point of the piece on knowledge management, personal knowledge management being a bullshit was really just um, attacking some of the excesses, I think, in that area, which frankly are these are things that happen to any meme when they get too big, basically. It was a yes. bit, it was it was an overly provocative title. I kind of leaned into. We were talking about this before. Like, yeah. I've, I've decided I'm going to be 10 percent more psycho, and this was kind of an example, actually. Like, I could have wrote that personal knowledge man, management essay in a much more diplomatic way. I could have been more fair. I could have been more balanced. But you know what? I'm like, like I tweeted the other day. I'm I'm from now on. I'm 10 percent more psycho. If there's like a more combative way of phrasing it, I'm just going to lean into the more combative way of phrasing it. Even though, yes, I know there are lots of people who use their own research and get a lot of value out of it. There are ways to use it productively. I get it, but um, I'm tired of I'm tired of uh, you know mincing words. I just want to be more combative and I, I want to call things bullshit when I if I feel that there is some something that is essentially bullshit, um, then I'm going to paint with a broad brush and I'm going to say this is bullshit. Um, even though there's going to be lots of perfectly fair things in 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 there on the margins, you got to get you got to get after the main thing, and you got to do it combatively. That's how I think about it. I I completely, in a certain respect, <laughs> agree. I wrestle with this constantly because I've always wanted to be like this tough guy, and I've noticed that recently I'm like uh, imitating the disagreeable people on Twitter because they're the guys who you know get the most attention and they fight and they're like you know. Uh, uh, Venkatesh Rao and Ribbon Farm wrote the the Internet of Beefs. How there's like these right. uh, ideolo- ideologies led by knights, and everyone cheers for their knight to represent their thing. Right. The battle of ideas and whatever. And you know, I'm enamored of the knight thing, and in this kind of Girardian way, I've been trying to imitate them, but it's just not where my heart is. It just doesn't feel comfortable. I don't know how to do it. And when I try to force it, I always regret it. And you feel guilty. You feel bad right afterwards when you're unnecessarily mean or combative. I feel guilty and immediately like, like, like what's out. I call down the thunder and then it comes and I go, uh, never mind. 
Okay, this is actually I think really interesting topic, and people this people might be listening like, why are these guys talking about their like super personal bullshit? But I think the much larger issue here at stake I think is is resonant with probably a lot of people listening to this or watching this right now, which is, you know, how can you be a truly good, honest, wholesome man, but also maximize your potential and have the greatest impact you can on the world? These things do conflict in certain ways. If you are too meek, if you are too meager. Um, you, you can call it being wholesome and being virtuous, but actually you're just being a pussy. Maybe (laughs) this is, this is the problem, right? It's not necessarily the case. You're just being, um, you know, uh, a little baby, but maybe you're erring on the side of actually just being a little baby. And so this is, this is actually a very large issue. It's not easy to figure this out. It's not easy to know where to be. And this, I think what, what you and I were talking about before we started recording is basically, it's like. You know, we're, we're Christian men. We do actually really believe in being good people and, and, and living correctly uh, and constraining our passions uh, correctly. But on the other hand, we don't want to be these weaklings, these these meager, these meager men. And we want to, you know, do, do as much as we can and have the greatest impact. And so um, it's a really important question. And it's not I don't know of many people really talking about this or like uh, sharing like specific heuristics on on how to on how to how to walk that line and, and how to how to get to the optimal place there. So I don't know. What do you have? Uh, what, how do you think about it? I, I am a ship at sea right now. I'm completely lost in this topic because I feel these two completely conflicting currents of, I, I legitimately think that the most rational thing to do is to love everyone all the time. And of course I don't really know how to do that or what that means necessarily. Of course I don't practice it incredibly well. Um, and also feel this desire to be like Muhammad Ali going, I'm right, you're wrong, here's why I deal with it. Yeah, yeah. And like these, these two, like how do you, how, where do these reconcile exactly? And to come back to our initial topic, I think eights have a natural talent for this. I think Muhammad Ali was like a textbook eight, this idea of the magnanimous challenger who was just, you know, fighting and a force of nature and sticking up for people and doing all this right. stuff. And... I, as a type four individualist, are much more of a like a creative, artistic, sensitive, introspective kind of type. So that behavior doesn't come as naturally to me in action, though, man, the, the, the undercurrent is in there. The impulse is in there. I'm just trying to figure out what's the version I can live with. Right. So the way that I think about this is I recently tweeted about I want to be 10% more psycho. And I like that heuristic because of the following reason. So the way I see it is I look out at the world and I see people way more psychotic than me um, who like do actually kind of bad things or they say bad things. And I'm not talking about evil things. I'm just saying like they say things that I think are cruel or irresponsible or, or just unhinged in a, in a bad negative way that probably is doing harm to themselves and to others. And they're, and they're, so they're significantly more, more psychotic than me. Whereas if your default is that you – if your actual true self is you're just like a basic bitch, wholesome Christian dad like I am basically, then you need to account for what your true baseline is. And it means that you can be 10% more psycho and still be like below average psycho or or you like within – that. I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's like if your baseline is very not psycho, then you can consciously choose to be 10% more psycho and you're still – um, going to be below average, probably psycho. Like that's how I think about it. So it's like my default nature is insufficiently psycho. 
And so by just deciding to consciously increase it 10%, you know, people might see that and think like, oh, Justin, that's not Christian. That's evil. That's how, how could you purposely choose to be even 1% more psycho? Well, no, if my baseline is too, is, is not psycho enough, then it's okay to choose to be like, I'm going to write this blog post in a way that's purposely 10% more combative than I would by default. Um, that doesn't mean I'm being combative. It actually just means I'm like in equilibrium. I'm, I'm like, I'm compensating for my own insufficiency and I'm just like, uh, balancing my, my, I'm balancing out my own, um, pitfalls or my own like failure modes of my default personality. That's how I think about it. And to me, that's justified. Yeah. I think that sounds very measured. Like I'm kind of tempted to want to leap tall buildings in a single bound and just like do the bravest, most audacious possible thing. But that ends up being reckless yeah. And the bravest possible thing in like a balanced way is actually a, an incremental adjustment. Like right. you don't try to lift a million pounds immediately. You'll break yourself. But if you lift 10 more than your previous max or something like so that. So I've been pretty psychotic, like purposely at, what, at a and higher what do, level. What do you mean? How are you define? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Like back in, when I, in Philadelphia when, it, when I was in grad school and I was like people, a lot of people who follow me now and you know know about my, my work now don't know about my whole history because it's not easy to find. And a lot of people... Yeah, I would say like a majority of people who follow my shit now don't even know about like my I've, I've been on the Internet and crazy on the Internet my entire life. And a lot of people don't even know this. So when I was in grad school, I lived in Philadelphia. I was in like the punk scene and the alternative music scene. Like I lived in this massive warehouse with like 25 people. And it was uh, it was basically like full blown communism, like crazy communism, basically um, in this. It was basically a squat. But in America, you don't actually squat. So it was like we called up a guy we found an abandoned warehouse and we called up the guy we found the owner and we called him up and we're like could we pay you a small number of dollars each month to let us like live there and we moved in it's super cheap anyway it's crazy and like disgusting kind of uh an interesting brilliant thing but ultimately ended terribly uh make a long story short though i uh back in those days i was like really into radical art i was into like surrealism i was into like uh joseph boys i was interested in like um Dada and and all of that. And I was like, um, I've always had this kind of vision of art and the intellectual life, the creative life as being this thing that is intrinsically, it has to be crazy. It has to be um, uh, excessive. It has to be constantly breaking rules or else it's not going to be real. It's not going to be anything. And I was younger, so I had much more piss and vinegar and, and was much more reckless. And so um, this was back when like Twitter, this was like the early days of Twitter. Okay. This was like not super early days of Twitter, but like this is 2010 around. Um, and so we, this was on Facebook was like the big social media basically. Um, and I used to go, I did like performance art shit. Like I would go to art galleries in Philadelphia. These like per in retrospect, I feel guilty about some of it, but, but I kind of don't, I'll, I'll tell you the story. So like I would, I would do things like this, just a representative example. I would do all the stuff all the time, like in different ways for like a year or two. I did this kind of stuff. I would like go to some like art gallery in like Kensington and, it's like perfectly nice young artists, like whatever, like doing MFA programs or whatever. It's like perfectly nice people. And I would like scream at that. I would like have a camera. I'd have someone like film me and I would scream, you're all bourgeois idiots. And it would like, it was like this, ex <laughs> literally I did that. I would, like, I would like interrupt 
artists like presenting their work and I would scream and tell, tell say they're all I'd say you're all bourgeois fake artist uh, scum this is a, this is this is um, a travesty and it was like this excessive thing whatever uh, my point was like I'm the outsider artist I'm not doing an MFA I don't have a career here I'm not trying to win anything I'm not trying to get anyone's money or power this is true art this is Dada this is like excessive avant-garde shit that was like you know my my um, way of thinking I was like 20 whatever but I did that kind of stuff. And I actually had a bit of an audience in Philadelphia online. Like I had people following me online because I would do this kind of stuff. And like the local like hipster culture magazines, whatever, would like write about me. I was like mentioned many times in like local hipster culture magazines or whatever. Anyway, this is like super corny inside baseball bullshit. I'm not acting as if this is like super important or epic or anything. But my point is I have like throughout my life I've done this kind of stuff. I've, I've always had this kind of instinct and this like – just just calling in a way like you have to just always be trying to be excessive and be ridiculous and be outside of what is like tolerable and um yeah so in retro like was that good or bad i don't know um i do but i do still kind of believe that i don't know nowadays when i'm older and i do this kind of stuff like i think you're more likely to kind of feel guilty like i'm often i guess my thing is like i don't cruelty is the thing to avoid it's like be psych be 10 percent more psycho just never be cruel never be cruel. Um, and I feel like, like my piece on personal knowledge management was a bit combative, whatever, but it was like, uh, it wasn't cruel. I wasn't like, you know, unnecessarily mean or nasty, but I think that if you like want to love truly, then you have to be able to hate at least somewhat in, in a way that's like, um, balanced and, and equilibrated. Cause if you're just nice to everyone all the time and it's all just, you know, smiles and cooperation, then, um, you're kind of diluting, the love and the cooperation in a way. If you're not able to draw some lines and be like, that's bullshit, that's bullshit. You're my enemy, you're my enemy. Then what are you really doing? Yeah, yeah. I don't know, that was a No, that's cool. Back. I mean, I think it started when I was trying to ask you to define psychotic. Did we kind of <laughs> do that a little bit? <laughs> or define by example? Um, oh, right. So what is psychotic to me? That just means like um, you see a, a thing that you're capable of doing and you decide to just not care about like social niceties and you do what you need to do to get to that thing. I love it. I love it. I've, I've always loved that kind of ethos. Um, in fact, I, when I, my first job I ever had, I was also in Philadelphia at the time. I was 15, 16 and working at Subway. And funny side story about that, I might have coined the term sandwich artist like really? it became a meme. I really? put it on, yeah, for filling out position, I put sandwich artist because I didn't want to, I didn't, I don't know, it was a nice way of saying it. And they had a stack of applications and I got the job, which I thought was weird. It was my first job. <laughs> and it was like 2005. And then six or seven years later, I started seeing sandwich artists like as a meme all over the place. So if anyone's seen sandwich artists before 2005, please disabuse me of my huh, notion here. See, we didn't have blockchains back then, so you don't have the timestamp. I know, right. But if someone can just cite it, and from right. 2004 and just, you know, take the doubt out. I'd appreciate that. I feel like but I went, I went on that super long, uh, stupid rant about like my earlier life. I feel like I need to make good on it. So I want to like okay. follow up a little bit on it because I think where I was going with it was one of the big pitfalls of being psycho, although it is, I think artistically and intellectually defensible for the reasons I articulated, which a long tradition of, of people have noticed like Dada, like the surrealists, um, is that it's mania and it, it's like manic swings. And, and that, that was something that I had back in, in my college days that I was describing. And I think that's why I first mentioned it because I would do these like three day, uh, like binges of like no sleep and like crazy writing on Facebook and 
go disrupt an art gallery and film it. Like I would do this for like three days straight without sleeping. And then I would like crash the next day and, 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 and I would be like somewhat depressed and, and it's it's, like an extreme sport, like a thrill seeking kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly. But in the, in the, in the crash, you don't feel good. You don't feel happy. You don't feel artistic and you, and you feel guilty and you feel like that's where things can get kind of demonic when you like get carried away, when you get like possessed by this like power drive that becomes like totally unhinged. And so that's why I say 10% more psychotic because if you're, if you're genuinely like a basic bitch, like Christian dad, you can be 10% more psychotic and you're not going to do any harm. You're not going to get carried away in some kind of manic upswing. That's going to lead you to crash and feel guilty. You're just going to be like a little bit more effective, a little bit more impactful, a little bit more disagreeable. And you're, you're going to avoid the crash and, and that kind of guilty, depressive, uh, manic downswing, uh, which I've had. I, I know that from experience. That's the pit, that's one of the pitfalls of of the the too much psycho. Yeah, I've I don't think I've ever gotten to the point where being psycho became like a power trip high like that. I think just doesn't doesn't sit with my constitution the same way. Yeah, power trip high is exactly the right way to describe it. Yeah, I've been there, and that and that's kind of the the hard the hard the hard thing. So one of the, I think one of the reasons we're also talking about this is because we were talking before we started recording about um, Milady, and I have this kind of thesis around the Milady NFT side. Well, and, and, I, before we go down the yeah. rabbit hole, can I tie it back to my subway story? Oh, that please, I was just of course, starting? yeah. Okay, so you're talking about um, if there's a thing that you want to do, uh, what you mean by psychotic is just setting aside all the social norms and just doing the thing and f you, and I've. Uh, to illustrate, to prove that I've always loved that, um, despite having a very different like personality mm-hmm. structure than you, I think, is when I was uh, working at Subway, I was kind of online in love with a girl who lived in Las Vegas, and I was in Philadelphia. So this is my first job. It was my first money. So the first thing I did was buy a plane ticket to go see this girl after like working for a month at Subway. And I could do this without telling my parents because the train station to the airport was right across from my high school. So I could just walk there and and go for like a weekend. And I didn't end up doing it because I felt really guilty that I was sneaking away. Mm. And I told my dad on the last morning, I like wrote him a letter and gave it to him when when he dropped me off at school. And he turned around, came back, took away my credit card. Like it was, it was mayhem. And I, you know, had to quit the job and all kinds of stuff. But this idea of, it's technically possible for a 16 year old to fly from his high school to meet some girl. Therefore, why not? Like the, the, the union of desire and possibility equals action. Why not? Don't let your dreams be dreams. Like Mm -hmm. that's a silly meme, but it's always been kind of deep in there as a reality. Right. Um, so yeah, just, just, just to like underscore seven or eight times that, that idea of, I think it's, it's really necessary to give ourselves, the, the chance to act on things from a really honest place. So you did go or you didn't go? I didn't go. Do you regret it? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say because it's, it's hard to say if I would have regretted the consequences of going more than the consequences of telling my dad. I, I think one of the heuristics is do you, f- do you feel on a daily basis that you're, um, not doing enough like you're not seizing enough moments you're not you're do, do you constantly feel or do you regularly feel regret or pangs of inefficiency or inadequacy where you maybe like you see people on youtube videos or you hear people on podcasts or you read books or something where you're constantly feeling like oh man that guy's badass 
and I'm not badass because I don't do anything like that. Like, are you constantly having those kinds of feelings? If so, you need to be 10% more psychotic. That's what I think. Whereas, are you feeling on a daily basis regretful that you maybe hurt someone's feelings? Are you feeling that like you were too selfish in some event or experience? Are you having pangs of of that sort of regret where you feel bad about hurting someone, if you're having those kinds of pangs on a regular basis, then you need to be less psychotic, basically. So, so I think it's like that's the it's like this dynamic um, uh, error correction process, basically, where um, if you're not hurting anyone's feelings and you're not feeling guilty about doing any harm to anyone at all, but you're feeling like uh, a little self-loathing in comparison to other men that are doing badass shit then you should be 10% more psychotic. Um, and you could probably do that without doing any harm to anyone and without, it's all positive gain probably. You could be 10% more psychotic. Um, but as soon as you start feeling bad, if you start actually feeling guilty, then you need to be less psychotic and you need to not indulge that. Like, you know, we're just using the stupid example that we started with uh, my not my my little uh, tirade against personal knowledge management. Um like, I don't feel guilty about it at all. I didn't say, I didn't harm anyone. I didn't say anything bad about any person. It was a little bit more psycho- more like combative than, than it needed to be, but it feels good. I, that, to me, that's like a perfect example of 10% more psychotic. That's totally defensible. Didn't do anyone harm. And um, I actually don't write many like posts like that. Like I haven't, you know, I haven't written many like things in the recent memory that are actually like attacking someone uh, or something. It felt good, and I think it's totally defensible. All right, let's. I think we covered enough there. Yeah, that was good. I though. agree. Um, I, I I do suspect that's going to be a low. Key, that's going to be a low key cult classic conversation right there because you don't hear anyone talking about this kind of stuff. I don't think. Awesome. Um, what have you learned from Tolstoy? Uh, you said something very interesting to me before. Um, tell the audience what uh, that that idea you shared that you learned from Tolstoy. I'm so into this, and it's just such a it's it's a definitely a rabbit hole entrance of a, of a sort. And Tolstoy, I've never read his novels. Who could possibly? <laughs> but he late in life became a very devout Christian and just completely devoted himself to educating himself about uh, Christian uh, principles, largely in rebellion to what he saw as hypocrisies and excesses in the Russian Orthodox Church of the time and in the culture around him. That he was looking for, you know, the core truths, the essential things that actually breathed life into Christianity um, in a way that was absent in his, you know, Christian and name only uh, communities. And what he ended up writing influenced Gandhi and became, he became like a sort of pen pal of Gandhi's in a certain way when Gandhi was trying to figure out his things. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the things that Tolstoy said, and I'm, I'm keeping things that are at a pretty general level, but sure. you know, definitely like he wrote some foundational things about nonviolence and the critical central role of uh, non-resistance to evil using force. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you're, if he smites you on the right cheek, give him your left cheek, that kind of thing. And... You know, we he says that we have to completely opt out of of that. We have to completely opt out of all violent structures. We shouldn't pay taxes to a government that uses it for war. We shouldn't um, use courts to settle disputes because that's you know forceful. Um, mm. We should you know give up our 
possessions and riches and, and work and humility for the good of other people and things like that. And he just really, you know, took all these things incredibly seriously. And what he said amid all these things, the way he tied it all together is if you do Christianity the way it's supposed to be done, you literally become ungovernable. Mm. Like that's a meme, but yeah. like there's actually a way to become ungovernable. Right. And he illustrates this in, in saying that there's like one paragraph that I sent a tweet screenshot of is one paragraph where he talks about, look, if you are known for being voluntarily just not having to be corrected or punished, if you are known as being uh, just and generous and good, then when you break laws, it will look insane to punish you for them, to mm. prosecute mm-hmm. you for them. And this, you know, should start having echoes of Gandhi for people who know kind of his MO that, you know, you're going to arrest me and beat me up for making salt in my own country. Like you do these um, brilliantly and obviously innocent things that in turn call down unjust punishment against you and it makes the unjust punishment stand naked in its injustice Mm. and uh it makes the unreality of it uh it makes the deception visible in a way that can't be put back in the bottle in the way that you can't unsee wow that's beautiful uh thank you so that's you know what tolstoy uh illuminated for me and you know his school of thought kind of became sort of called Christian anarchism Mm -hmm. or got tied into that. I don't really know how schools of thought develop and get their names, but, um, you know, really stirred up a lot of people like this. And it's really hard to get a copy of the book in which he wrote all this. Mm. It's called the kingdom of God is within you by Tolstoy. And the only copy I could find was on Amazon. It was like one of those print on demand things that fits all the words that it's possible to fit into each page so that it prints fewer pages and they keep more of the profit. Right. And uh, it was physically very difficult to read, but uh, totally worth it. I absolutely recommend that. I'm sure there's free ebook versions around. And it's interesting. I, I I noticed that a lot. Like classic works that you really want to get your hands on, but you can't find a good physical copy. There's a real opportunity actually for someone, for some enterprising young person too. Like you could just make a list of all those books and then make them nice on Amazon, and they're a public domain, so you could own it. So so there's an opportunity to basically find, take that. But there's also you're going to easily find 10 or 20 others, find the ones that have the most organic search volume and then just make nice copies and charge, you know, upcharge for them. And you could make like a nice little publishing operation that's profitable and makes real money just and do an amazing service to the world to bring these books into circulation with with a nice copy that's like well formatted. Yeah. And I think a couple of years ago, Tim Ferriss was testing the waters about doing something like that. Uh, so, Tim, since you're listening, <laughs> uh Definitely recommend The Kingdom of God is Within You by Tolstoy. Yeah, Let's Tim, I think, has the second biggest po- podcast in Austin. He's catching up to me, but... Um, well, you know, it's good for people to have goals. Yeah, and one so day I might, let, I might let him on here if he, you know, if he keeps begging, like, you know, and asks me nicely enough. I was wondering why you had all those phones out there just just, just hanging up constantly. It must be just being... I know, dude. It's hard. It's hard. It's, it's hard. it's hard to keep up, but... Um, okay, fascinating. And you mentioned Gandhi also. I know that you've learned a lot from Gandhi. Um, in a weird way, like... Liking Gandhi is almost contrarian now because for a while he was like the epitome of of the good guy, maybe the most famous kind of symbol of of good human being. And then it feels like his his stock price went down. I, I think there's a kind of 
set of reasons why people say Gandhi is, is fake and bad and cringe. Um, so give us the, the contrarian case of why Gandhi is based and not cringe. Okay, here's here's why Gandhi is based. And like there's whew, there's infinite layers to this. But I got time. When I was 15, I think, I was an atheist, but I was trying to learn how to get girls. So <laughs> I was like in the seduction community thing before the yeah. game came out yeah. and all that stuff. I was I was, you know, doing that. And one of the books that they recommended was Radical Honesty by Brad Blanton, a psychologist. And he recommends just being completely radical honest about all your <laughs> secret weird thoughts and stuff like this. And I was testing this out uh, in school. And, you know, I'd be doing some mischievous thing and get caught. And I'd say to the administrator, oh, I didn't uh, think I was going to get caught. I was doing this mischievous thing. And if you <laughs> hadn't been here, I was going to go do that other mischievous thing. <laughs> And what happened was anytime I would do this, the situation would resolve itself in a way that was far better than I could have contrived in any kind of way. And so even as an atheist, I started getting this felt sense that the truth is a force of nature that will work with you. Let's go. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man. Yeah. So it gave me this deep sense of trust in truth as a thing, as a force that operates almost like, you know, wind blowing through. And if you just raise sails and catch it, it'll do things for you. You can like harness it. Wow. It's not just, you know, abstractions and concepts and symbols and propositions. It's a thing that operates. It has reality like this. Yeah. It can hit you. And you can be more or less correct about what it is. Like you can understand it more or less. You can have mental models that are more or less aligned with it. And if you're aligned with it, you're going to be going very powerfully and effectively. And if you're not with it, you're going to get crushed. Yeah. Yeah. That there's like, um, a perhaps non-logical or translogical or non-linear structure to it. And yet you can tell the difference when you're with it and when you're not just by the results, by the effects. Right. And that's where Gandhi comes in because he, uh, he, weaponized, operationalized truth as a force. And that's all he needed to take down the British Empire. And I say that, you know, in this very hyperbolic way that he's often addressed in, but that is technically literally what he did. Like it's, it's not hyperbole to say he defeated the British Empire with the truth. He didn't, you know, use any guns. He didn't say, well, if you don't, you know, if you don't submit to me, well, I'll let the armies get you. (laughs) No, he was always the reason he did those fasts that almost ended his life was because Indian people were acting up and taking violence into their own hands. And he said, no, if 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 my, you know, giving people hope of independence has created this violence, then I'm responsible for it and I will die before I continue to be responsible for it. Fascinating. You know, he, he did it to quell violence and and, you know, become convinced that he wasn't responsible for it. Like that was not a possibility anymore as long as he lived. And he, he operationalized the truth in this very, you know, tangible way of, of relating to it like a force of nature and harnessing it to achieve a goal. And that's something that is very underappreciated in the, in, in modern culture where it's very much about representation of truth in propositions 
and uh, rigor and details and complexity and just trying to capture it in a string of world words that ends all strings of words. But it was never intended to be merely a string of words. It's intended to be this force that we can relate to either skillfully or unskillfully. Love it. And um, ah, there's one more thing I want to say. Yes. So some of the proof of this can be seen in Gandhi's autobiography, which is titled The Story of My Experiments with Truth. He's very I like how you're looking at the camera now. I just cannot (laughs) emphasize this enough. It's scientific. He was experimenting with truth as a force, and he said so on the cover of his own book. Wow, that's cool. He talks about how he did it. That is cool. Yeah. Very based. So that's why Gandhi's based. Okay, awesome. Fascinating. And I, I I know that you're a fairly recent Christian convert. Yeah. So you're thinking, man, I'm sure as someone who is influenced a lot by Buddhism, by, you know, um, um, Gandhi, you looked at things like Buddhism and you you looked at things like Christianity. So how do you, as someone who loves Gandhi, um, how do you see Christianity as uh, advancing that even further? So the link came largely through... Rene Girard's work, which I hadn't read until recently because I'm always late to trends. Uh, and I read, I see Satan fall like lightning Girard's book about the, you know, single victim mechanism and all that stuff. And what he did is without mentioning Gandhi, he described Jesus's method of overcoming sin and death and evil and Satan in precisely the same terms as Gandhi used to describe his tactics without mentioning Gandhi. But it it just illustrated that uh, Jesus satyagrahad Satan. It's it's the same thing. He did these profoundly innocent things that called down the thunder of the, you know, uh, evil powers and principalities against him so that when they killed him for it, everyone could see it was underpinned by bullshit. Mm. And uh, you can kind of see a parallel to this in when, uh, when Moses is leading the Jews through the desert and they are sort of uh, plagued by poisonous snakes that bite them. It's causing this problem. And Moses says, God, take away these poisonous snakes. What do I do? And God says, well, you know, put us, put a staff in the ground and hang a snake on it and make everyone look at it. And upon looking at the snake on the staff, people lost the fear of the snake and like the problems Mm. went away. And it's kind of this same idea of if you make the deception of evil, of Satan, public and conscious, it loses its power. Gerard is talking about exposing the deception necessary for evil to seem justified Mm. and that's what Jesus did. And then 2000 years later, that's what Gandhi did. It's the same precise mechanism that Jesus uh, used the truth as a force to defeat evil. Okay. Fascinating. But there, there's some difference, right? There, there are, there are some differences and sure. as a recent, oh, yeah, absolutely. So what I'm getting at is that that was, that was excellent and a very worthwhile um, kind of rendition of, of the parallel. But as someone who is a recent Christian convert, you must have, you know, confronted the question of like, why should I follow Christ and not follow Gandhi, for instance, right? So it's like, what, how, do, how does that shake out to you? Yeah. Um, that particular question was never really the operative question. What, let's see, what's going on? So there are some 
psychoeconomic factors at play. One, uh, I had married a Christian, and I'd been going to uh, church with my wife for a couple of years, and uh, I, in the course of my relationship with her, started coming out of what had become an eight-year spiritual crisis slash depression. I was just in constant despair and the moving average of my life and sense of spiritual and psychic health was on a downtrend continuously since 2012. And I just was completely detached from the hope of being moral, the hope of being good. I was, I was in a just horrifically desperate place. And after fighting that for five or six years, um, I kind of gave in and was like, well, I'm just going to try to enjoy my life because I know it's not going to be pleasant after my life. So um, I had always tried to uh, fill my heart with the women and love. And so when I reconnected with the woman who's now my wife after 10 years of not really being in touch. And we had this energy. She had this beautiful vibe and energy and it was nourishing me. And so I literally moved to China to be with her and she's American. She was, she was just living there abroad. And, uh, I kind of pretended to be a Christian so that she wouldn't leave. (laughs) I was, I just had no, no, you know, moral backbone at all for a while in our, in our relationship and even into our marriage. And so, uh, what happened was I actually learned a meditation technique from Vinay Gupta, who's a founder in the, uh, Ethereum space, uh, founder of Materium. And this meditation technique that he very kindly taught me after spending a really long time with me at a, at a conference, uh, was the first thing that actually started to improve my spiritual condition after after these eight years. Wow. And so I was like, oh my goodness, I'm improving. And this is a way longer story than you <laughs> meant to elicit. That's no problem, right? And uh, so, you know, I was excited and I almost overdid it and broke myself. And I called Vinay. I said, I almost overdid it and broke myself. And he said, get a therapist and handle your trauma with the therapist and then come back to this later. So I got a therapist and the therapist started giving me kind of radical honesty type of advice. And I started taking it. I started being able to tell the truth again. So I came clean to my wife. I said, I've basically been pretending to be a Christian because I don't want to lose you. And the conversation did not go this casually. I promise it was, it was painful. Um, but you know, I wanted, I wanted to give her an out. I wanted to say, look, I deceived you. And if you want to end it, like I'm, I'm here and I'll, I can, I can do that. And she said, no, we are, we're married and I'm going to do this. I'm going to love you. And I said, you know, my grandparents survived the Holocaust. So I don't really expect I'll ever accept Jesus. And you might have to just, you should just reconcile with that. And to her credit, she did. And one of the ways that I know that she did is a couple of weeks later, I accepted Jesus. Whoa. So, okay. I get where this is going. So you were, you were basically like in that extraordinary kind of humility uh, and generosity that she showed you in kind of listening to you and accepting you. Nonetheless, you were kind of like, oh, wow, this Christianity thing is true. <laughs> is that kind of how, I mean, like that- you were so kind of affected by it that you're like, whoa, this, th- 
I'm being super honest in rejecting this thing and being and just telling her that, but she's able to handle it. That it actually like Christian pilled you. <laughs> I or, mean, or maybe I'm putting that. Words that in no, that that may have been operating under the surface. I wish I could take credit for being as sensitive as to have been subject to that, and okay, maybe so that, that was, but then? not consciously. So, so, how did it click? so what happened on a conscious level was. Uh, we were just, just going to church like a normal day, but it was COVID. So it was outside and it was, you know, during the music part in the, at the beginning. And I was just thinking, just kind of reflecting. I had been in this period of, um, you know, whenever I felt some vice, I would say, I will, you know, eschew this for you. Oh God. So if I'm feeling lazy, I would say, I'll, I'll make this effort for you. Oh God. If I was feeling afraid, I would say, I'll, do this scary thing. Wait, this is when you were not Christian. Yeah, this is, this is when I was not Christian. Cause, okay. cause I'm, you know, I was still, um, you were into a God spiritual a- aspirant. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Still, still into, into God, but you know, as you know, as an everything but Jesus kind of okay. person. And, um, so I was in that kind of phase and I was just reflecting during the, you know, musical portion of this church service. I was saying, you know, what really is, are the, you know, big factors and big reasons that I wouldn't, accept Jesus. And what came to mind was, uh, it was the humiliation of being the grandson of Holocaust survivors and having resisted it all my life and all my family. And just, you know, it was, it really boiled down to humiliation, just the crushing, like Hmm. defeat and embarrassment and disgust and self reproach of that, I guess. And because you saw the Holocaust as like a Christian thing. Uh, I mean, not, I wouldn't put it in those words, like a few feet down the rabbit hole, we can say that, but it's more like the Holocaust gave, you know, solidified the Jews modern identity as opposed or as separate from the Christian thing. Yeah. Right. That the Jews kind of, especially American secular Jews who don't really practice Judaism all that much, basically practice, um, they, they basically identify as the non-Christians, you know, like right. I, I went to school in Cincinnati, Ohio, and gotcha, gotcha, I would okay. say I'm a Jew and they'd say, oh, my God, I've heard of you in legends. Gotcha. And there's like yeah. this distinctness right. amid American culture. Right. So converting to Christianity almost would make you feel bad, like you're, um, you know, uh, disrespecting the 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 experience of of modern Jews after the Holocaust. Yes, yeah. yes, and I'm still I'm still wrestling with this because it's a big it's a big kind of cultural identity crisis. And you know, hmm. my dad, you know, it's 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 tough. It really yeah. hurt him yeah. when I oh, okay. when I accepted Jesus, and you know, you know, profoundly. So like, I'm I'm still wrestling with this deep down inside. But um, yeah, like, so yeah, I realized it was this sense of humiliation at the thought of accepting Jesus. And what I did in that moment was I said, you know, I will, I will endure this humiliation for you, O Lord. And I just felt something kind of lift. And later that day I was able to, you know, say a prayer and accept Jesus. And it was kind of a mystical experience. Like there were some like fireworks and golden light and stuff like that. Like it was, it was really cool. And I felt, uh, elevated inside I felt kind of you know out of the muck I felt you know some kind of page turn um for for me spiritually and uh all the humiliation and pain that I expected didn't happen 
it, mm. it felt kind of like uh, jumping in a cold pool. Like the worst part is the anticipation and the, you know, there's like maybe a shock yeah, of, yeah. of terror, but huh. then you're fine. Wow. And, you know, it's just, it's really not so bad on the other side. Like, and, and, uh, you know, I, I highly recommend it. So, yeah, I think it was, I think, um, Chesterton who says that, that, you know, the difference between Christianity and Buddhism, I'm paraphrasing, you know, very glibly, it's something like the difference between, you know, Buddhism is very kind of introverted, basically, uh, and internal turns inward and Christianity is more oriented towards, towards the outside world. Christianity is more comfortable, um, kind of attacking the world more aggressively than Buddhism is, which Buddhism, Buddhism is known for, you know, a certain kind of ethos of, of turning inward and, and tranquility. And it occurs to me thinking about all this, that I wonder if one could venture the thesis that, uh, Christianity is kind of like Buddhism, but maybe about 10% more psychotic, you know, because Christ has this kind of psycho vibe a little bit, doesn't he? I mean, compare, if you compare, um, Christ to the Buddha, you could say he's maybe 10% more psycho. He already goes into the, turns over the tables of the money changers. He does kind of outlandish stuff. That's a bit provocative. That's a bit, you know, to outsiders who didn't understand it, who weren't Christ pilled yet. They're looking at Christ and thinking like this guy's a little psycho. So I think that's kind of an interesting uh, hypothesis, perhaps. Yeah, that is interesting. To, to bring it, it back to what it we're frames, talking about. It frames yeah. me up, actually, because I was just thinking about this. Because as like, you know, a spiritual dude, like a meditator guy, uh, I've always, um, you know, had some Buddhist influence. And uh, recently started thinking, you know, about the risk management of it. And I wrote a tweet entitled, Why All Buddhists Should Accept Christ. And it, the, the argument, which I'm just starting to flesh out, goes like this. Either you're fully committed to enlightenment and it doesn't matter who your guru is as long as they get you there and you can accept Christ because it doesn't matter who your guru is and he's, he's the divine one. He's the one who rose from the dead, so why wouldn't you? Or B, you're not fully committed to enlightenment and you need a savior for when you fall short, which you're already planning to do. Mm. And uh, this has spawned some interesting conversations that I'm like starting to fractally, you know, figure out. But I just kind of like, you know, I like this this way of 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 putting it that if you take it from like a risk management Pascal's wager sort of a thing, uh, if you're a serious Buddhist about reaching enlightenment, then uh, accepting Jesus is the safest way to do that because you don't have to worry about having the wrong guru. You don't have to worry about uh, like being too self-directed and getting, you know, distracted or confused or misled. Uh, you don't have to worry about dying sooner than you plan to. Like maybe you won't get those extra 25 years of meditation you're planning on. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to worry about like if that happens, Oh no, well I have to, you know, learn, be reborn and learn to read again. Actually, I'm not sure about that. I'm still wrestling with, you know, reincarnation and Christianity. They might reconcile. Um, and, you know, accepting Jesus takes away all these risks for no cost. So why wouldn't it be the obvious choice? And the reason is uh, ego attachment, attachment to identity and like your particular artisanal flavor of doing things. And if you're like a real serious Buddhist and you care about ego transcendence, that really shouldn't factor into your decision. You should be more, um, more rational about it. So that's kind of the germ of the of the argument. And I'm, I'm interested in, 
and seeing where that goes. Right on, right on. So you are the your company is Idea Market. You yeah. think a lot about information and markets, and what you're trying to build with Idea Market is basically a market for information, a market for credibility. So you think a lot about how ideas rise and fall, and 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 how the truth can be, you know, found uh, through these decentralized kind of market mechanisms. So I'm curious to learn a little bit more about, yeah, just how you think about truth seeking as a process, um, how markets do or do not uh, come come to true conclusions. And I want to start by asking you about heuristics when it comes to actually like sleuthing around for what is true. You said something to me interesting recently where you said that you think, uh, one should actually start with low status sources. Uh, that this is it's more promising to start with low status sources than high status sources. Um, that's I think contrary to what a lot of people would think naturally, because what we think naturally is um, high status sources are more reputable. Uh, they've earned their status. Um, you can trust them. They wouldn't be high status if they were you know faulty or or liars. And so people naturally think they want to avoid the low status noise where there's lots of lies and chaos and, and falsehoods. They want to go to the high status sources because those can be trusted precisely because, you know, um, status is is a kind of filtering system. But you say no. You say start with low status sources. Explain that. Well, I'd like to build a little more context before I explain Please. that. Okay, so um, – Idea Market's origin story is like when I was new to crypto in maybe 2017, I had never invested in anything, never, you know, just figured out that aspect of life. So I had no way of doing due diligence or anything like that. Um, so what I would do is go to the weirdest corners of the internet, like 4chan, where the anonymous, you know, uh, uh, primordial ooze of the memosphere happens. And that's where often the best information in the world would surface first. And of course there would be no particular reason to believe this or that, but it is there if you can sort through the, in, and find, you know, the diamonds in the rough. And what struck me about those communities was everybody was always saying, show me this, show me that, tell me what I'm missing. What's the best thing in the world that nobody knows about. There was this ferocious curiosity at scale. I had never seen so like such a large community so intent on getting the world's best information about anything. And so my first interaction with markets was, whoa, markets scale curiosity. They make people care where they otherwise wouldn't and like coordinate that in a direction. And given that the internet means that the world's best information is already out there, access isn't a problem. Mm. Uh, possession and discovery of new knowledge isn't a problem that there's such a wide you know gap between the knowledge that is common and the knowledge that is the best that's available to mankind that we have to stop thinking of discovery in terms of discovery and think of it in terms of uh, curiosity and mainstreaming so if markets can make people curious what I wanted to try to do with something like idea market is, uh, scale curiosity about everything, not just crypto assets, so that there become incentives and rails for bringing the world's best information from the fringes, fringes of the internet to the mainstream. And that's always been like the primary, you know, driving impetus of it because it, it feels right now like we're the proverbial guy starving in the supermarket. 
We have the world's best information in troves right. that is just as accessible as CNN. Right. And here we are starving in the corner because of the way our you know information and, and social sense-making infrastructures are, are set up. So that was kind of like the initial impetus. You also said something, though, interesting about how you think that, in a way, high status brings increasing costs to yeah. honesty. Or I will, t- I will yeah, totally so, get there. I yeah, will okay. totally get there. So um, the other kind of, or one of the other fundamental things about idea market is it's kind of trying to build the notion of, of the market metaphor into our collective sense-making. Because okay. right now we're kind of uh, using vestigial epistemic structures mm. from a time when we didn't have the ability to uh, read all the books in the world at once and follow people who are reporting from Istanbul live and things like that. Uh, when you needed to figure out a way to outsource the collection and synthesis of information in order to give it to more people via a newspaper or a TV or something like that, then yeah, you had to trust intermediaries a lot to do that. And they would compete on the basis of usefulness. Well, actually, I mean, there's, you could easily argue that uh, public knowledge has always been incredibly manipulated, Mm. but um, the process was kind of inevitably uh, create certainty about a thing and then enforce it. And if you rebelled too hard against the certainty that was created by the knowledge institutions of the time, you would be burned at the stake or exiled, which we now call deplatforming, uh, or uh, you have your reputation attacked as, as we still do to this day and things like that. So um, the problem with that is certainty is the most relentlessly non-existent thing in the universe. Our whole basis for uh, creating knowledge to disseminate is 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 flawed because we're not going to have certainty. Uh, Gödel, Heisenberg, Wittgenstein all make sure of this: that you know, at, the deeper you go into any any field, the less certainty you find. And so we need uh, a more mature way of relating to information instead of trying to quell the fear of uncertainty by installing false and fragile certainties, we need to have mechanisms for responsibly managing and relating to uh, the inevitable uncertainty of knowledge. And we already have mechanisms for doing this that are incredibly well adopted and respected, and that's markets. So if we can translate the market like risk management metaphor into knowledge management, I expect that that uh, like metaphor use case fit that metaphor market fit by itself will mm. produce far better results than the create and enforce certainty model that we've inherited from the eons. That's great. Um, so that's, you know, some of the philosophical basis and what the market metaphor for knowledge kind of acknowledges is the psychoeconomic decisions about belief that when we believe something we are placing bets. There are books about this already written by poker players and things like that. Annie Duke thinking of bets, things like that. The idea that when you believe something, you're basically saying, I bet this belief will serve me more than all of its alternatives. We're just constantly doing that. It's kind of Mm self-evident and having a, a language for that helps us to consciously play this game that we're inevitably playing as opposed to pretending to play a certainty game, 
while actually playing a betting game. The, the metaphor alignment is way off and it, it causes all kinds of problems. So when we, uh, when we believe something, when we bet on a belief, we're actually kind of making a psychoeconomic decision. We're making an economic decision. We're weighing uh, how badly do I want to understand more about this or be right about this or know the truth about this versus what are the social costs of changing my mind? Will my family reject me? Will my community reject me? Will I be embarrassed? Will it turn out that I've been wrong about something and double down on it really hard that I'll have to undo? Will I have to apologize to people? Will I have to start wearing new clothes or going to a different church or stop going to church or start going to church or something like that? There are all these emotional pain, pleasure economics going on Mm -hmm. that ultimately influence what we decide to believe. Um, And so like the, the hardest part of truth seeking is being willing to pay the costs of all the pain Hmm. is being willing to prioritize understanding above all the other pain you're going to have to endure if you continue to prioritize it. Right. And that's why I talk about pursuing, uh, Oh, pursuing low status, uh, information first, because the propagandists of the world understand this psychoeconomic thing and they have weaponized it. And the way they do that is they use social status and social hierarchies and notions of what's cool and influential to, uh, make sure that it's very costly to deviate from the preferred narrative and set of conclusions. If you uh, are a great, you know, trumpet for the propaganda that whoever pulls these strings is wants to disseminate, they will make you famous and make you cool and make you powerful and rich. And you can go around like this and people will listen to you. Right. And if uh, you uh, are heretical and say things that the propaganda regime does not want you to believe they will uh call you names like conspiracy theorist or right wing or bigot or whatever they can with the exclusive goal of making it uncool to be or to like Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. and this has nothing to do with truth this is the manipulation of social status as though it had anything to do with epistemic status. Right. Um, it's weaponized social status. Yeah. And so when the information world is as chaotic as it is, what I recommend is on any kind of contentious topic, especially the more important topics, seek information from the lowest status sources first who have already opted out of the game of reputation management. Right, because almost by definition, that's where the least known truths are going to be hiding. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it'll be full of BS, but of course, so will the more reputable things. It's just coming from a different angle. Yeah. And uh, I'm making myself mad. There are things that I want to say soon. 10% more psycho, dude. Let's go. I'm going to say it. I'm just going to put it it in the right order. I'm just going to put it in the right order. A psycho would not wait for the right order. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, a particularly calculating one might. You, you do, yeah. You're good. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yes. Seek information in the lowest data sources possible first, because the hard part is not 
uh, finding out what the truth is. The hard part is wanting it bad enough mm. to accept the right option from among all the ones with their attendant levels of pleasure and pain. And, and this comes back to Christianity because Christianity is basically the philosophy that just always bet on the truth. Come what may let the chips fall where they may forget all the pleasure and pain calculus. Just whatever is true, go with that and you will win. The truth will set you free. hundred percent. And it's 100%. true. That's the craziest thing is it's actually real. That is real. It's true. Yeah. It's crazy. It, it really is. And it's such, it's such a relief and it's such an invigorating thing to realize because it, it, uh, Visacon Virasami on Twitter, who I love, said something really cool. He's or, been on the podcast. No, it was you. He's it been was on the podcast. You. Okay, nice. you posted an awesome, <laughs> an awesome like image quote of something, and it was like, "Fictional evil is exciting and various, and fictional good is boring and routine. But in reality, real evil is boring and routine and blasé and banal, and real good is constantly exciting and refreshing and adventurous. And that's." That's the thing. That's what truth does is it makes an adventure out of your life without having to hurt anybody or be evil. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah. It gives you this like the Christianity correctly understood. We were talking about this before. Also, it's like it, so many people misunderstand it so badly. They think that Christianity is like this list of dogmas you have to subscribe to. And then you're constantly living this heavy, guilty life where you feel bad for doing every little thing. And you're like trying to hold yourself to these standards outside of you held up by the church or whatever. This is like the quotidian cartoonish version of, of what people think Christianity is. And it's could not be farther from the truth. What it really is, is literally you just have to do what you believe is true. And you have to try to figure out what is true as passionately and fully as possible unconditionally. And you need to do whatever that tells you to do basically whatever the objective truth, which you acknowledge exists outside of you, which you acknowledge can be figured out more or less correctly. You have to try to figure it out honestly in good conscience. And as you figure out what the truth really is, whatever that dictates you should do, you have to do whether you want to or not. But that truth is literally the best way to live anyway. You couldn't you couldn't hide from Christianity and choose some different path that would make you happier or better that that you want to do. Like no, the Christianity is literally just saying figure out the correct way to live and then do that and nothing else. So it's like literally forcing you to figure out what is true, to live up to what is true and to literally figure out the best way to live possible and that's what you have to do. It's like so crazy how kind of perfect and awesome it is. It's so people don't get it. People don't get that. Like, how do you communicate that to people? It's not about how I communicate that to people, but my interpretation of, of, of faith in, in action. And, uh, there was a, the church that I go to now, it had a previous owner a while back and my favorite, you know, billboard thing that it put up as a church was, uh, hearts are changed by your example, not your opinion. And I think that's the key. That's how you communicate that. That action is the settlement layer of the marketplace of ideas. Nice. In all the battling ideologies, what do you do? What can you do? What do you have the ability to do? And that's what uh, Gandhi demonstrates so well in modern times is that uh, no matter what his other flaws were, he defeated an empire without picking up a weapon. He was a poor man who owned like a loincloth and glasses and a walking stick and shoes. And that's about it. And, and that's what he was able to do. And that, uh, demonstrates the power of the ideas that he bet on. 
And that's what we have to pay attention to. And that's what we have to do. And that's how we have to communicate them. Um, yeah, the end. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just like so interesting to me how all my friends who are Christian have these like super interesting, super based, like kind of philosophical supplements for how they understand it. And it just, you can't find it anywhere. You can't find that represented anywhere. Like wherever you find Christianity and like mainstream culture, it's like this other thing. I, I won't be disrespectful to it, but it's like this, it's this other thing. And and there's this massive, massive gap in, in, in public culture markets around Christianity. I mean, let's talk about that. That's a kind of an interesting question, yeah, right? Like to. if you think about how you price information and, you know, this idea that in a, in a, in a full and efficient information market, good ideas should rise to the top and bad ideas should sink to the bottom it's kind of fascinating to think like how Christianity fits into that and, and why are public representations of Christianity so cringe and false and fail to convey the like really living, breathing, awesome based and like nature of it that all my friends seem to get it. Like, uh, like we talk about this kind of stuff and it, it makes a ton of sense and it's philosophically sophisticated and it's extremely generative and coordinating and uh, dynamic. And, and also, um, live and contentious, and it's not at all the kind of cringe, dogmatic, oppressive, guilt-laden thing that most people think it is because that's the dominant public image. Like, what's going on there when it comes to information markets? What's going on there when it comes to mispriced assets? What I think happened there, and this is a thought that's 10 seconds old, so I don't <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. What I think happened there is the priorities of the church and it might have to do with, you know, uh, being a, a tax exempt or being donation funded or something like that, um, is at some point and in some way and for some reason, and also also possibly just, I, I you know, I think you make a pretty strong case that it's also uh, for honest reasons the priorities of the church shifted uh, to get as many people in the lifeboat as possible and, you know, get as many people to accept Jesus as possible. And what, you know, the, the problem, the problematic implementation of that approach was, uh, instead of trusting Jesus's advice on how to accomplish that, they started using human ways of accomplishing that. Mm -hmm. So instead of, pursuing Christ and truth and leading the way culturally, they started following culture and said, look, we can make rock and roll too. Look, we can mm. be appealing and liberal too. And started trying to chase after people based on culture instead of demonstrating the, what human beings are really able to do with God. And uh, you can kind of see that, you know, for centuries Christianity led the way in art and music and now uh, mainstream Christianity is following cultural trends instead of setting them and this is something that was just pointed out to me by some guy on Twitter <laughs> but I thought it was a really succinct uh, explanation of that gap between the real uh, power of, of Christianity and what we're seeing as its most common cultural instantiations. Yeah, that is interesting, especially when you put contemporary Christian culture in contrast to, you know, like the European Renaissance and and uh, the the heights of European Christian art. It's so true, and it's so it's so striking, right? Like what today is 
like Christian music as a genre, right? And it's like just like kind of cringe music, basically. Whereas like if you're what it should be is if you're Christian, you should be making incredibly based, awesome art. And you shouldn't even be calling you don't mean you don't need to call it Christian. It yes. doesn't need to be its own genre. Yeah. Um, but the power of God should be like propelling extraordinary things um, that can only be propelled by the power of God, kind of like the like the great cathedrals and a lot of the great Christian art. You do kind of look at it and you're kind of like, oh, this probably could only have been made by people who believe in God. Um, oh yeah. Can you imagine anyone doing such a like absurd thing as building right. a cathedral nowadays right. from scratch? Right. Right. Like, how, how would you convince investors to help you with that? You know, like it's just such another kind of mindset that devotes multiple lifetimes to achieving something. Like I mean, that. one thesis would be that some of crypto is actually what we're talking about now, because I think there is, I, I'm not a, I'm not aware of any professionally conducted survey data on this yet. Um, it's actually a really interesting topic for any social scientists out there, but um, you could you could actually run a, a, a correctly conducted representative survey. That this would be really interesting. I don't think it's been done yet, um, but it sure seems that um, Christianity is overrepresented in in the crypt, in the crypto community. Yeah, particularly in the Bitcoin that. community, it seems obviously true yeah. in the Bitcoin community. I'm not sure that it's true. It seems true. It's I, it seems true in the Urbit community, and you see these you see these certain pockets of of that. Um, you know. Uh, correlation that is definitely you would not observe that by chance alone yeah so i do kind of wonder if today the true based christian energy is actually building uh on crypto rails and when we are actually in the early stages of what will be kind of like the cathedrals like extraordinary like truly significant um massive world historical architectures are being built right now disproportionately by Christians because you can kind of only do that with, 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 uh, the spirit of God behind you. Yeah. It's a thesis. It's a thesis. You know, I could absolutely see that playing out that way. And it does seem that, uh, Christians are, are disproportionately represented in, in crypto and some very cutting edge things. I think, you know, the, the, uh, edgy atheist position has kind of been milked of its social status power. Mm hmm. And the people who are like, you know, the real powerhouse intellectuals are wanting, are continuing to want a challenge that atheism cannot continue to provide. And they're, you know, discovering in, in the same way that I did, you know, the same, uh, you know, intellectual fire that can lead to atheism can lead through it to Christianity or to spirituality of some kind. And, um, so we're kind of seeing like a midwit meme play out right. that the the smart people are coming around to go, oh, the guys in Kansas were right this whole time, you know? Right. And the, the bell curve meme. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's my favorite meme ever. It it's just, so it, good. And it's so it's so it's so salient because it covers so many things right now. Yeah. And there's a lot of truth to it. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. So, uh, yeah, I think the the people who are Christians in crypto are. Uh, the kinds of people who are not content with either uh, more f common interpretations of Christianity and uh, more common rejections of it. They want the hard thing. They want the truth. They want the challenge. They want the adventure. They want the pain of it. I certainly feel that way. And uh, it's, you know, it's really exciting to behold and, you know, and, and, and be a part of. Heck yeah.
well, Mike, this was awesome. We talked about a ton of things, a lot of, a lot of wild, uh, topic switching in this. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for coming through Austin to, to do this in person. Great pleasure. People can find you on Twitter. Uh, idea market is at ideamarket.io. Is That's that right? Great. That's right. And, uh, yeah, I'll put links to all of your things in the show notes so people can reach out to you if they want to. And, uh, yeah. Anything else that you wanted to get on the agenda that we didn't cover? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm contractually yeah. obligated to let you know that okay. Idea Market is launching a new product soon. Oh, please. And it is uh, like a social network with a rating system. Okay. So you make posts and it can be short like a tweet or long like a Reddit post. Okay. And then users can rate their agreement on that post on a scale of zero to 100. And you can rate something any number of times. You can change your mind over time. But the rating goes on chain so that we can look back in time and see who was right about X at time T so that we can kind of keep a public database of opinions, of personal judgments. We can see who provided usefulness when you know there was chaos and, and who doesn't. So that when we don't have time for history to set, you know, set the record straight, when we have to act now, we can see who, who was really on the ball when it counted and, and who uh, deserves our trust now. Fascinating. I'll ask you a quick question about that because it's, it's, I'm curious about it. Why, why would you not just try to mirror data that's already being produced elsewhere where people are generating commentary and try to kind of uh, integrate that and price that and, and mark that because, right. Cause it, now you have the, the challenge of like getting enough, getting a critical mass of people creating content. Why not build something parallel to where content is already being created? Um, we may, we've been tempted to do that. We've, we've, we're, we've come very close to doing that. We've taken that approach many times, but there are a few reasons that we're not doing that. Uh, this time, at least at first, one is that given that each post will be an NFT and each rating will go on chain. Oh, is that how you're doing it? Okay. Yeah. So basically every post, uh, has the potential to be a cultural object. And the way I like to talk about it is like, if you go to a baseball game, a major league baseball game and you get a baseball and you get the whole team to sign it. All right. You've got the 2022 Dodgers, all of their autographs on this thing. You've got like a kind of piece of history in it and its cultural relevance. And if I write a post on idea market that then you and Balaji and Naval and Eric Weinstein and Scott Adams and whoever else rates their confidence level on it. And it's almost like having an autographed baseball of, of cultural evolution. And you Mm. can kind of see how minds change over time with relation to things. And, um, so there's, we want to enable the, the value of that. We want to enable early creators and influencers who have uh, useful and undervalued things to say to give people a chance to record them in this way and to collect these kinds of things. Um, and second, I think we want to start from a place of a slightly higher activation energy. We want the people who really get it to be the first users so that the information it provides at the outset is the most interesting and the most provocative. Okay. Okay. I see. Well, I appreciate that idea market is always trying new things. You're, you're always kind of taking it from a different angle, seeing if this works, trying a different angle, seeing if that works. I think it's like such a chaotic, fast moving space that it's kind of the only way to win really in some, in, in certain cases for certain types of projects, especially something as ambitious as idea market, trying to, trying to solve this incredibly thorny, uh, but awesome, uh, goal of, of like accurately pricing information. Um, it's, it's great to see you trying different things and constantly kind of innovating and adapting. So I'm always watching with interest and, uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing this, this next, uh, stab at, at, at this very worthy problem. 
thank you very much yeah man no problem thanks for coming through mike i think that's we'll call it a wrap there and uh yeah that's it hey thank you so much for listening to the podcast you made it all the way to the very end so you must really like the show in that case i would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on apple podcasts all you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review that's otherlife.co forward slash review and it'll send you an apple podcast just leave a review you can be honest tell me what you really think I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.